Esports is no longer just about the game itself. To be a success and to find fulfillment in the game, it takes more. The mental, relational, and cultural component has become more of a focus. No longer is talent enough. An athlete has to be trained in a holistic manner to reach their potential. Training the Complete Athlete provides a wide variety of interviews and informational podcasts for coaches, parents, and athletes to gain insight to reach a higher level of performance. So today I am talking with Curtis Miller. And to be honest, Curtis, I don't even know if you have any connection to sport whatsoever. I don't know if you were a Little League guy back in the day or if you were a, you know, a secret awesome golfer growing up. But what I do know of you is you have an extensive background in education and working with kids that have been through trauma. And that's actually how I met you is through um, my husband, because he was working with you dealing with uh, the mental health side and the connection piece um, within school districts. And that's the work that you've continued on. And that has been super vital um, in, in schools now. And now we're trying to, to show how important that is in the world of sports is that overcoming traumas and making those strong connections. So Curtis, I'm really excited to talk to you about how these life, you know, these life events impact um, kids at all levels and how it impacts their ability to perform. So I'm excited to, to get in on this conversation. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I appreciate the invitation and looking forward to kind of exploring this content and seeing what we can figure out. And while I wasn't really much of a classic athlete. Um, I have been a cyclist and a runner since I was a punk. Um, so, so you do and, the sports that all of us want to stay away from because they're the hard ones, right? As I say, the runners I, and the cyclists, they have to have endurance. Yeah. I, I have a friend uh, who's doing a thousand mile ride right now and I, I'm sort of doing it I did the first day with him and I'm doing some other stuff like he's, he's in Montana today. Uh, but he did a 96 mile ride, um, a couple of days ago up to Lola pass. And, uh, the wind was so strong. He had to get off his bike. It was blowing down trees and it was, and it was in the nineties temperature wise. So yeah. Crazy. See, and, and, you know, as I say, I played the sport that you, the longest you really run is 120 feet. You'll run out of double. Anything after that, you're walking, right? We did not choose to punish ourselves, like, as I say, like long distance runners and cyclists. Yeah. So it, in your world, you spend a lot of time working with people as, as, as a consultant in education and communities. And one of your main topics that you focus on is this concept of ACEs. And that's become kind of the buzzword in the world of education. Um, for working with students. So can you tell me a little bit about what ACEs is and how that impacts um, uh, even younger children? Sure. Um, so in the 80s, there was a, a doctor, um, Vincent Folletti, who was running a, an obesity clinic in San Diego. And it was, it was not the, you know, get your Florida beach body back kind of obesity clinic. His patients were referred to him because they were they were really unhealthy and at risk of dying if they didn't get something straightened out. And so he put them on a regimen of like almost no food, but nutrition that was necessary to, to help their bodies function well. I always imagine like the the blueberry gum from Willy Wonka, you know? <laughs> like you you can have a meal in, a, in like a tablet. Right. Yeah, a stick right. of gum. 
I don't, I don't have any basis for thinking of that. It just <laughs> pops into my head every time I tell the story. So he, he had a patient named Patty who came to him and she was 400 plus pounds and they put her on the, the plan. And in 51 weeks, she got down to 135 pounds, reached wow. her goal weight. And then within three weeks of that, she had gained 37 pounds back. And which is not, obviously that's not part of the game plan. And so they try to figure out what was going on. And it turns out that someone at work had made a pass at her. And as a result of that, she subconsciously went into like a self-protective mode and started sleep eating. So for a while, like they, she couldn't even figure out what was going on. And Folletti thought this was really interesting and kind of grabbed onto this, this kind of investigative effort and started talking to other people in his clinic and discovered that 80% of them had some kind of trauma in their background. For Patty, she had been sexually abused when she was a child. And so she saw her eating and her weight gain as kind of a, a protective barrier from, from predators. And that was the case for almost all of the patients in his clinic. And so um, he gave a presentation to the CDC. They thought it was a joke, uh, laughed him off the stage, which obviously was disappointing. But that night he sat next to somebody who was high up in the CDC who, who thought his research was legit, but it just needed to be a larger scope um, and so they partnered with a clinic in, in San Diego, a Kaiser clinic, and ended up collecting data from over 17,000 people. And, and what they did was they asked these people who, keep in mind, these are Kaiser insurance patients, right? So I think the average age was 57 years old. Um, it was a pretty even uh, gender split, mostly white, uh, educated, um, employed, blah, blah, blah. So, and, and the point of that is, this was not a marginalized population. This is like a good representation of, of healthy people. So there wasn't some other confounding factor that skewed the results. So they asked these 17,000 people 10 questions. Uh, the first three were about abuse. Have you ever been physically, uh, emotionally, or verbally abused? Have you ever been physically or emotionally neglected? Were the, the second set. And then the last five had to do with family dysfunction. Was there any substance abuse or alcoholism in your house? Was there violence, any mental illness, anybody incarcerated? Uh, or did your parents get divorced or somebody died or something like that? So those 10 questions came to be known as the ACEs study, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And they found um, two things, uh, probably the biggest two findings. One is that about 67%, two thirds of the people that they asked had at least one uh, ACE. And so, so the way that it works is, if you said yes to like three of those things, so, you know, I was, I was abused, I was neglected, and my parents got a divorce. That means you have an ACEs score of three. So they found that most people had at least one, which 
if you think about it, those 10 things are certainly not the full extent of the kind of adversity that can be experienced by a child that would be considered traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, correct. doesn't include racism, doesn't include poverty, doesn't include chronic illness. There's lots of things. Yeah. And it doesn't take any... Yeah, sometimes even simply moving across the country can you yeah, know can sure. impact kids as a traumatic event. Yeah. Yeah, or being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, there's so there's so many more things, and there's such a radical range of personalities um, and sensitivities in how people respond to difficulty in their lives. So, but the the basic the basic ten questions had to do with age zero to 18, have you ever had anything like that happen? And what they, what they found, and it's been verified over and over and over. Lots of states and school districts and organizations have, have redone a version of this study. So it's been verified over and over and over. And it comes to about two thirds or a little bit more have at least one. And if you have one, you're 88% more likely to have another one. So the bottom line is, it's common. If you add the other things that we would consider trauma, um, the reality is pretty much all of us have uh, adversity in our lives that has an effect. The effect is the, that it has is the second thing they found. So it's common and there's a correlation between the, the number of your ACEs score and the likelihood that you are going to experience negative behaviors and outcomes of, of all different kinds of things from substance abuse to autoimmune deficiencies and, and cancer and heart disease and behavioral things and um, mental illness and difficulty in relationships. And I mean, honestly, if you Google um, ACEs and anything, you'll find a chart and a correlation between it. And basically, the higher your ACEs score, the more likely you are to have experiences in those kinds of negative behaviors and outcomes. If, if the impact of your adversity in childhood isn't mitigated, and that's kind of a cliffhanger because <laughs> it's, not, it's not the end of the story, okay. um, but I just talked for like four hours. So, <laughs> so, so when you talk about mitigated, you know, what does that look like? Is that, you know, cause you know, some kids live in a traumatic life and they never find themselves out of it until they, as I say, they can escape when they're 18. You know, right. um, I deal with a lot of clients that we, we say to them, Hey, we just got to grow you up as quick as possible and get you out of the house, which is an awful way to look at things, but sometimes that's their best option. So when you yep. say midi- mitigate, what does that mean? So there's a lot of different, um, mitigating factors. Um, A lot of them have to do with relationships, probably the most powerful, well, not probably, the most powerful mitigating factor or protective factor in the life of a kid is the presence of at least one caring adult. Someone who shows up in their world and loves them and cares for them and sticks by them regardless of their behavior and, and whatever else may come up. That's been shown to be a really powerful uh, protective factor. And a lot of people, like when I do workshops and I talk about ACEs, it's, it's really interesting. I can watch the, the, the folks who are there attending the workshop. And as I'm going through 
the the aces they're like oh i got that one i can just see their eyes <laughs> making count. a count <laughs> and 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 then i start i talk about like in this if you have a high aces score it means like well for for one of them like people with an aces score of zero for a hundred people with an aces score of zero um six of them will use intravenous drugs if their aces score goes above four it goes up to um it goes up to 60 or something like that it's a four it's a 4800 percent increase. increase yeah and it's the same spikes for things like suicide attempts and um, just all kinds of things and so here I, i'm standing in front of a room of people and a lot of my work is with is with teachers and psychologists and school administrators and volunteers and people who are helping people. Pastors is another particular one. And so their, their ACEs scores are usually higher. People who are in helping professions statistically have a higher average uh, ACEs score than people who aren't. And so they're all like, well, crap, I'm screwed. Like this, it's, I'm going to be an, a raging alcoholic and beat my children and divorce my wife and end up in a gutter someplace. But they're not. They're already not. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're productive, healthy members of society. And so invariably somebody will go like, well, what, what's up? How, what happened to me? I'm, I've had a lot of this crap and, and I'm doing okay. And I usually say, oh, just wait. It's going to go <laughs> south pretty quick. <laughs> No, I, and, I and usually, crush the dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just wait. You're doomed. There's no escape. No, I usually just ask, like, so was there was there a person in your life? Was there somebody in your life that came alongside you at some point that that you could point to as like a mentor or a family member or something like that? And almost all the time, um, I actually haven't ever had anybody who said, nope, there was nobody. I was completely isolated. I just figured it out on my own. I've never had anybody say that. Um, but almost every time somebody will say, ah, yeah, you know what? My grandma, and then they'll tell some story about how their grandmother was the caring adult in their life. And that's, that's huge. That's the, that's the biggest one. The other thing, uh, and these come from a, a really, fascinating study done by, uh, was it a longitudinal study done by Emmy Warner um, on the island of Kauai from 1955 to 1995. She tracked every kid who was born on Kauai from 1955 for 40 years. So almost 700 people. And when they got into their teens, about a third of them were what we would call, what we'd call now, they, they were kids with a high ACEs score. They didn't know about ACEs then. Um, and they started getting in trouble and having problems and all the stuff that you would expect. But within that segment, that, that one third wedge in the mid to late twenties and early thirties, there were 72 uh, people who started to show like, it's not performance numbers, but like their, their data about their health and their relationships and their job stability and all that kind of stuff started uh, spiking above everybody else. Not just the third of the 
of the kids who are at risk, but the whole 698 people. And so the, the researchers are like, well, what the heck is going on there? And, so, and they had all the 25 years of data, right? So they just started going back through to figure out like, what is, what is going on with these 72 people? And one of the things that they found was this caring adult, like every single one of those people had somebody like that. The other thing that they found is that in, in their way, whatever that looked like, those people felt a really strong connection to their community. Like they felt like they belonged, they felt safe, they felt noticed, valued, all of that kind of stuff. And, and who knows what that looked like for them, you know, the corner drugstore guy waves and offers free ice cream to Johnny when he comes by or whatever, but they had that feeling. And then the, the third thing was resilience. Um, and the way that this study talks about it is the, the, the notes that they took and the interviews and all that kind of stuff showed that these kids were like, you know, they'd fall down when they were little and they just get back up and not go running and crying and they were curious and communicative and kind of like likable, charismatic little kids. And I used to say all the time, we can do something like we can build connected communities and we can be caring adults, but we can't really do anything about that, that last one, but it isn't actually true. We can, we can invest in the next generation of children being born. Obviously it, it's a long-term project, but the field of epigenetics has shown that like you grow up, you grow up kids in an environment, in a healthy environment, ACEs score or no, and they will have healthier children from the get-go because the, the effects of trauma is epigenetic. It, it, your parents and your parents' parents have an impact on you. So it's longer term, but we still have opportunity to influence, influence that. So what it comes down to, amongst other things like autonomy and problem solving and being able to read and, and education and getting out of poverty and all of those things that we always look at. But what it comes down to is, is that resilient characteristic, the presence of caring adults and a feeling of connectedness in your, in your community. Those are the, those are the big things. So how can you identify in, in kids, if maybe they fall into this category, you know, you are a teacher or a coach or one of those, those healthy adults. How do you realize that a kid is kind of the product of that? You know, so often in school, it's like, oh, they're the bad kid or they're the troublemaker or they're this instead of, hey, this kid is coming from a background that he's had a higher A score. And so he doesn't see the world the same way or she doesn't you know, mm -hmm. react to things in relationships the same way. So how how can adults identify that in their in kids instead of always just being, you know, they're the bad kid or they're the trouble kid? So the short answer is they can identify that in the context of relationship. Mm. Um, and that, that really is what it comes down to. I, it's pretty hard to be able to figure out what's going on in the life of a kid unless you know them and you've spent time and this would be the other part of it. You've spent time like uh, in their story. Like you know what's happening at home and what their big emotions, where they're coming from, and and all of those kinds of things. But I would say that it's safe 
for any teacher, coach, volunteer, any adult who's working with kids, it's pretty safe to assume that there's some kind of trauma, maybe not trauma like they've been being abused for their whole life, but, you know, um, some, some circumstance or instance that's happened to them, multiple things that have happened to them in their lives that have affected the way their brain is wired. Kids, kids, well, humans, but it's happening more when we're kids. Our, our brains, our neural pathways are built out of the experiences that we have, out of all of the experiences that we have. So if kids are traumatized, especially if they're growing up in an environment where there's that level of toxic stress that's, that's constant, they're going to end up with um, neural pathways and, and brain structure that uh, puts them in a self-preservation mode. Their, their fight, flight, or freeze mechanism is, is operating just barely below their daily operation mm -hmm. The, the threshold of daily operation. And so it takes, they have a hair trigger mm -hmm. and it's not that they're being a bad kid. It's they've been, they've been literally engineered to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're hypervigilant and they'll interpret things in their environment that are dangerous. They'll interpret things as dangerous that aren't. And so you'll have a kid who will lash out at somebody who cut in front of them at line in line but the reality is there's probably been six other things that have happened that led up to that point. Mm -hmm. And so my, my recommendation for adults that work with kids are figure, find out the story in the context of relationship and, and understand what's going on in the life of that kid. And then your work as an adult is to start rewiring their brain. They haven't learned to trust. They haven't learned that people are safe, that, they can have solid attachments and, and we can actually give them those experiences. Mm -hmm. And and that rewiring does take time. And that's, I think what's really hard is we think, okay, we invest a couple hours in a kid. We're going to rechange every, you know, we're going to change all those components in their brain, but it's showing up day after day and reminding them that I'm going to show up day after day. You know, I literally said to a client's um, yep. um, dad one time, I said, for a while, I'm just going to show up. Because he needs to know that a female in his life, that this my client needed a female that was trustworthy and is going to show up. And we just goofed around for a while because he needed to know that I was going to show up every day, no matter what. And that's yep. the thing is, it's those repetitive things, yep. those simple things that sometimes are the most important to kids to build those new neuropathways to, uh, for them to understand trust and safety in, a, in an adult because they have never seen it any other way. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think that like when you, when you are dealing with a kid, especially who's had significant trauma, what, what they, they have developed a way of looking at the world. That's, that's, that's like a, it's like a rut. And so you got to join with them and help them to, to create a new pathway, but it's super easy to slip back into that rut. So they need, they need that coaching and that constant reminder that happens in the context of relationship that gives them a new normal way to behave. And that, that does take time. But I will say um, our brains and our whole like, you know, mind, heart, gut functionality, the, the, 
the nervous system there um, is built based on our experiences, on every experience. So even if you only have one small interaction with a kid, that's the only opportunity. Like they're, it's an, a player on an opposing team or something like that, or, or the, the McDonald's employee who's serving you your hamburger, the way that you interact with them and the way that you, the, the, what's happening inside of you when you make eye contact and the way that you use your voice and all of that kind of stuff, it is an experience. Every single time it's an experience and there's synaptic uh, firings that result out of that experience. And even if you don't get a walk with them for a year, you still can have a positive impact every time you have an interaction with another human being. Well, so I was just sitting with, uh, with a coach a couple of weeks ago and I said, I looked at every interaction with an athlete um, when I was an administrator that I might only get them to sit on my couch one time and if, and that's it because they are so busy or they might not like talking about touchy feely things. So I had to say, I got one shot. How do I invest in a kid, whether it's 20 minutes, an hour, four hours, cause they don't leave your office, but you get one shot. And so right. I think that is really important when you look at all those interactions, you may get one shot to change somebody's view on a lot of different things. And yeah. so that's why all those interactions are so important. And it's interesting watching you know the last six or seven months we go from hey we're in it together to so divided and now that we live in the world of fires now it's we're back together again and how every single interaction through this this crazy yeah. year is going to dramatically impact the rest of our lives right and people don't think about that so when you choose to be kind to somebody you are literally rebuilding their brain right people don't think about that yep yep absolutely so, you know, let's, yeah, let's especially say, when they're kids. Yes. Well, yeah. When, as I say, when they're still mostly goo, right? The cement has not right. necessarily right. settled in. So what is, how can this play out when kids do get to be teenagers and they go off to college and maybe they haven't had somebody that has intervened in their life, right? They've kind of just, you know, gone through this kind of traumatic setting. They haven't really had somebody grab hold of them. What can it look like as they get older? Well, they say that, uh, and by science, I, by they say, I don't mean the same people that Tim McGraw is talking about in his <laughs> They Say song. I mean, real scientists. Um, that uh, we develop all of our neural, um, our, our brain cells by the time we're about two years old and the synaptic connections between them are about a thousand trillion when we're two, and then they prune away until we're about 18, until they hit about 500 trillion. So we get rid of half of our synaptic connections. There's still a lot of synaptic connections, and we still maintain brain plasticity literally until we die. So we can learn new things and have new experiences. And what's great about um, older teenagers and young adults is they they have they have a greater capacity for like articulating and understanding complex thoughts and and having like conversations about things that it, it's a little bit more difficult to have with a six-year-old so they may have had a whole string of bad experiences and and their way of looking at the world has, has been damaged and they have a high 
or a, they have a low stress threshold and all of that kind of stuff. But their their ability to be in relationship, especially with someone who understands that it's a it's a tough it's a tough road uh, to rebuild that stuff when you're older, and so they have that the patience that's required to do it. There's a lot of potential there. There can be a partner a partnering that happens. But I think one of the things that that we miss a lot is we don't we don't have to fix everything in order for people to be valuable like you can suffer from anxiety and depression and anger and whatever you can you can have those things going on in your life and still be a, a critical um, valuable member of your community and I think that's one of the things that we need to remember is it, it's, it's okay that we're broken. That's what we have in common. Mm-hmm. Everybody Absolutely. is. So we're working on that stuff. And we always should be for the sake of our own health and the health of the people that we love and are in relationship with. But we can keep working on that for our whole lives. So even, and, and I extend this to, to people who do things that we would call bad things, to criminals, to people who have serious diagnosable mental illnesses, they're critical elements, they're critical parts of the human system that makes up our community. And if we can shift the way that we think about them from, okay, so that one will be a valuable member of our society when we get them fixed. Mm -hmm. Shift from that to, no, they are now. They already are a valuable member of our society. If for, if for no other reason that they give the, they give the healing mechanisms of our community the good work to do. I mean, there's, there are us in the world whose work is to foster healing and, and restoration and give hope to people who are hopeless. What would we be doing if there weren't other it's people like us who are broken? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's, and that's the, that is the case in every living system on the planet. There's a healing mechanism that's built in there that needs brokenness in order to be useful. When I think it's crucial that that brokenness is what we have in common. You know, I've literally seen siblings in families that, you know, one might be the jock, one may be the emo kid or, you know, all these differences. And they look at those, they look at is like, your hair's weird, or you do this weird or all this stuff instead of, wow, we both came from the same divorced parents. We both came from, you know, survived a traumatic earthquake and lost our home. They don't look at how those traumas are, are something that makes them similar. It's all the other petty stuff. And that thing right. is, is no matter what our experiences are, we all have been gone through challenges. Like you say, it's pretty hard to survive 18 years without an ACE, right? And yeah. we let those yeah. divide us instead of saying, hey, what's yours? Oh, mine's this. So let's, how, how do we help each other? Right. It yeah. divides us instead yep. of the one, the one probably all or commonality we all have other than being human beings. Right. It's probably the only right. other thing we have in common. So in the world of sports, you know, the number one thing I hear about all the time is the the pressure and the anxiety that comes with athletes. You know, the other the big thing, too, is also the expectations and also just the demand on schedule as well. You know, I think about going off to college or even even playing in high school, my my life just didn't look like everybody else's. I was traveling. I was gone. I, I missed out on things. But then I also got to experience other things because I was, you know, in great places like Norman, Oklahoma, um, you know, hanging out at the Walmart uh, because there's nothing else to do. 
But there's this expectations and pressure and demand that comes on student athletes, professional athletes. Um, how can these aces come into play when it comes to sports? And then I'm going to add on top of that, what are the best things that the adults in their lives, their coaches, um, parents to help them maybe be able to manage some of that? Well, so the impact of ACEs um, kind of, it, it has a, two pathways, I guess. Um, one of them is the damage that it does to us. And that's legitimate. Like being abused as a child is going to, is going to do damage. Um, but I always like to like, I always like to think about and talk about superheroes. If you think about pick almost any superhero something terrible happened to them that's very true and the terrible thing that happened to them usually uh is is still uh recognizable you know the the hulk gets green when he's mad because he got exposed to gamma rays and it really messes things up but man he's freaking useful in a fight <laughs> Yes. And and the the guy from Fantastic Four that's now made out of rock. I'm sure he's disappointed that he is now made out of rock. <laughs> but again, Useful. that's the thing. Yes, that's the thing that is a huge part of his identity. And I think that is the case, especially in in team sports, because you've got a hopefully you've got a built-in community. So you have this opportunity. Um, not only do you have a built-in community, but you have like specifically definable roles. Like you play a particular position on the team. And if you're traveling together and practicing together and you're on mission together and you go to battle together, you're going to see characteristics of each person that rise up, both the ones that are really beneficial to the rest of the community and the ones that are a detriment. And so I think that, um, emphasizing the fact that humans are designed to function at their healthiest and most powerful state in community. Um, and, and not necessarily when they're all functioning perfectly well. Like that's part of the reason for community. If you have somebody who like gets really pissed off when somebody misses a foul ball like for whatever reason that's their thing and everybody else knows that's the case then when <laughs> then when a foul ball gets missed they hug that player right <laughs> like okay we know it's coming dude it's okay just chill and and that's a that's a power that's a benefit that being part of a community can be on a person who has a weakness who has a, a particular kind of brokenness when it's known especially when it's known in a context and it's not just that's the main thing about them. It's also that, well, this is the person who always makes sure that everybody's drinking enough water, whatever it is. They have some thing that they bring to the team. And you can see that stuff when you're on a sports team, it just sort of rises to the surface. So I think one of the things that we need to do in, in our communities, and this is one of my big, um, I don't know, soapboxes, is we need to call that stuff out. We need to say the things that people are, that, that's part of their core intrinsic identity, that's a value to their community. And we need to say, hey, 
you when you turn green, man, that's good for us. Mm-hmm. We need to maybe not do it when we're inside, <laughs> do it outside. <laughs> but what, what, whatever it is, there's there's qualities and character traits in every single person that if they're called out, that that experience of identity is very powerful and it's very healing and protective. And it usually does a lot. So this is another really interesting thing. Our, our pain, our trauma, our shame, our brokenness, our hurt, the things that we've been accused of and attacked for and all of that kind of stuff. If you look at where those sit in us, they're almost always rooted in the same place as whatever it is that's most powerful about us. Almost always. And so if you're trying to figure that out, you can, and when you do, and you start accentuating the, the benefits, that, um, that is a really powerful like reducer of the negative side of, of trauma. Well, I think that key of two things you said, like being okay with saying what your weaknesses are is really important and being able to be honest about where your strengths are, right? I think when people talk about strengths and weaknesses, we they're, they're embarrassed to say, I'm very good at this, even though they could be. And they have learned to turn all their negatives into a positives. I think getting ready for job interviews right. has, has taught us right. that. Instead of saying, I really struggle with this. You know, I, I always refer to it as the, the Nemo moment when everybody's like, oh, I have, you know, I'm lactose or I'm H2O intolerant. You know, I have a, you know, uh, my tentacle shorter. Nobody ever comes and says the worst things about them. Right. Right. But those, those things are just as crucial to truly know somebody in community. So when things are rough, you can say, Hey, this is what's going on. And I right. think that honesty about calling people out is very much ignored because nobody wants to hurt each other's feelings instead of saying, Hey, I see that in you but your strength can override that, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. honest support approach is so important. And I think we avoid both. We don't want to face our weaknesses and we don't want to call people out because we don't want to be uncomfortable. Right. And we avoid that right. at all costs. I think the calling out too goes, it, it, it's this, we have the same resistance to it um, when we're calling out the positive characteristics. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things in, in a lot of the research that I've done personally, I've set up storytelling groups um, and people tell, they tell their own stories, right? And so they'll go around and after an hour or so, there starts to become kind of a, some clarity about who each person is because you get to, you start seeing their character in their stories. And <clears throat> then there's a, there's a point in the process where they start saying, okay, I see the characteristic of compassion in you or humility or, or like you're an Uber organizer or whatever it is. And so, and another thing that I have them do is like um, compare them to like a, a famous character. Like, you know what, you're just like Harry Potter in the third movie or, you're like Neo or Matilda and whatever it is, Anne of Green Gables. And what happens over and over and over is that, so let's say it's a storytelling group of five people and four of them are like honed in on the other one. And they're trying to figure out like, is there, are they like this or that or whatever? And there's this discussion that happens and it usually distills and it is awkward for the person that they're talking yeah. about. They're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> They're all talking about good things, but it's it's just 
it's uh, uh, it's weird mm -hmm. to do that because we think it's our job to figure out what we're good at and what we're bad at, strengths and weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. And taking that from other people is just, it's, it's not part of Western European culture. Mm -hmm. But when they get there, and I've seen this happen hundreds of times, the four people will come up, they'll, they're like, all right, we think this is what it is. And the, the person who they're talking about, well, it's some version of, oh my gosh, I've always wondered, or I've always hoped, or I've always thought, or my favorite character is that person that you just, you know, Joan of Arc or whatever. It's a confirmation. Mm -hmm. Like we have that in us. And when we are, when we get connected that way with other people, we can see it in each other. And when we call it out, we can call it out more powerfully. Like I can say, about you uh, more powerfully positive things than you can say about yourself. Because mm -hmm. it sounds arrogant when you say, you know, yeah. I want to introduce you, myself to you. I am, uh, I'm one of the, you know, most effective counselors you'll ever meet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I, and like, if I said that, everybody would be like, and I don't want to work with you. Right. 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 <laughs> it's just so it just comes out so like hollow and self-promoting. But if I go around and, and the other three people in our group go around and we know Carrie and we say, no, she's freaking, that's her superpower. She can get into the heart and the head of a, you know, of an athlete faster than anybody you'll you'll meet and she'll figure them out and they will leave feeling healed if if other people say that you it's like you just got lifted up in a way that you could never do yourself that's what i'm like you're, re you're really good at marketing buddy just in, just in that statement <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's what that's what community is really doing we're marketing each other but we have to know each other first Yes. We have to see honestly strengths and weaknesses. And, and when we call out those strengths, people are more, oh, an, uh, an isolated individual is going to be far more um, aware of and bothered by the things about them that are broken, that they see as weak and shameful. They're going to be cognizant of that stuff much more intensely then they're going to be cognizant of their strengths and the thing that they bring to the community. That's what isolation does. It raises up the bad and reduces the good. So when we get together into a team, into a community where we know each other well, we flip that. And we, the, the other people in the community raise up the strengths and the power and reduce. We say, no, that stuff, it's not as big of a deal as you think it is. What we're really getting from you is the good stuff. But we got we to gotta call that out and not keep acting like we're all independent entities. Well, I think that's such an important thought, especially at, at the current time and working with a lot of teenagers, you know, they all think that being a alone in the room on their phone is really what makes them happy, but it does lead to a lot of anxiety and depression because they're alone with those negative thoughts more or how they view themselves right. in a negative light instead of they're kind of built in cheerleaders. You know, when people, all, you know, all the teenagers, when I say I go, it's not good to be in isolation. They think I'm crazy. And that factor is, is when you're not in community, you are alone with those thoughts that are usually on the negative side, not the, Hey, I'm going right. to point out all the qualities. The other, the other piece that is really important of what you've been talking about, Curtis, for athletes is the identity piece. 
because mm-hmm. so often in athletics or even high performers, it doesn't matter if it's academics or music or art um, or athletic or athletics is that what they do becomes their identity. It's, you know, it's right. who they're, who they are is not their identity. It's you are a shortstop, you are a singer, you know, you're this gifted artist. And so when those things disappear, which in a lot of ways they do in athletics, we all retire, um, right. you know, we don't know who we are. Because nobody's right. ever said, hey, you are very kind and caring and compassionate. You're energetic. You're creative. So we link kind of that whole star onto whatever we do as a performer. And you see when people transition out of being that person as they go through these deep depressions yeah. because they don't know who they are outside of performance. You just went garbly. I just went garbly. Are you back? Uh, are you, you, is that better? There we go. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I do think that's a key component of identity. I absolutely agree. And I think it's a mistake. You, you hit it, hit the nail right on the head. It's a mistake that we make really frequently. And you, you, you hear it when we introduce ourselves to people, it's like, Hey, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's not that what we do isn't necessary. Isn't it, it can often be a part of our identity, but it's usually it's usually an expression and the way we do the thing that we do is an expression of our intrinsic identity. And so you may be a, a shortstop, but you're, you do shortstop in a particular way. That's, that's, that comes from you. And, and that's the thing, that's the paradigm shift that I think we need to make in teams and in communities and in our culture is that, uh, you know, you, you may be an artist and you're, and one of your most powerful intrinsic uh, like character traits might be um, artfulness, but that doesn't mean that what you do is what you are. It, it just means that you're fortunate that you get to do something that's connected to you, but you can be, you can be a plumber, you can be a factory worker, you can be a McDonald's, whatever it is, and express your intrinsic identity uh, in, in that work. It's, I believe it's possible, but it's a lot easier to have the experience of that identity if it's being recognized by your community. Yeah. It's interesting when I I meet a new athlete, whether it's a client or not, I'll usually ask what position they played or what, like if it's track, like what event you did. And they always kind of look at me like, why does that matter? And I'll, you know, when they tell me, Hey, I'm a thrower. I spent a lot of time with throwers for some reason. And I'm like, oh, are these some of the things that you're, you know, similar personality traits? And they're like, how did you know that? I go, it kind of goes with it. But I ask that because I want to know what kind of, you know, the deeper thing, not just that you can throw an object really far away or that you can hit the ball really long, long way. I want to know some of the characteristics that usually do go to go with it, you know, because I want to know, okay, that's a bigger chunk of your identity than, you know, you're big and strong and can throw things. It's usually a very specific personality that goes along with it. But yeah, they're always like, how do you know that? I go, I don't know why, but in sports, usually positions match personalities too, right? Yeah. So um, what are some, and you've kind of talked about this, and but just as we wrap up, what are some of the really key things that coaches and parents can do to help athletes, um, you know, overcome some of these, you know, you know, as I say, going back to the aces or hardships to make sure that they are still on track to have a fulfilling life, a contributing life, you know, as you say, everybody contributes, it just looks differently. What are things that they can do to make those things possible for um, 
the young kids or even, as I say, the young adults that they work with? So I think that the, the, the overarching answer to that question is that they can, they can be in relationship with them. They can share in the story with them. Um, but there's there's some specifics that sort of fit into that overarching category, and one of them, one of the things that I that I uh, like a, I teach illustratively in my workshops is uh, when I'm talking when I'm talking about trauma, everybody in the workshop has a little Tupperware container. Um, and some of them have a tiny little red sponge and some of them have a medium sized red sponge and some of them have a larger green sponge. And every time I say the word stress, they're supposed to pour a little water out of their Dixie cup into the container. And so that section goes for about an hour. And when we're all done, the little tiny red sponges are usually floating in water and the medium sized red sponges, sometimes they've absorbed it. Sometimes they might you know, be saturated. The green sponges, most of the time, um, have absorbed whatever water and they still have room for more, right? The little tiny red sponges represent kids who have um, been affected by trauma. And the medium-sized red sponges affect kids who have not been. And the green, larger green sponges represent adults. And the idea is uh, kids who've been affected by trauma are uh, they have a they have a lower stress threshold so they'll be saturated by the stress they experience from wherever it comes more than people who haven't been affected by stress and one of the things that we can be to kids who have that low stress threshold is sort of an absorber of that stress and because and so what i do is i say all right take the green sponge and put it into the into the container with the tiny little red sponge and you just shove it in there and then it, it absorbs all the water and then the little red sponge is now not saturated all the water's gone and of course the, the caring adult has absorbed all of that so they they need to go do some self-care at the end of the day or whatever but they they've 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 partnered with the the that kid in a way that allows that kid to shed some of the toxicity of, of what's going on in their brains when they're going back to that self-preservation mode or they're believing that they're alone in the world and that, that the people can't be trusted and all that kind of stuff. That, that um, connection, that relational connection absorbs some of that stuff. And there's, an infinite number of ways to do that. Um, and you can, you can figure it out for every person. Sometimes it takes longer than uh, to figure it out for some people than it does for others. But there, there are, I firmly believe there are no people that exist that can't be in relationship in a way that makes them healthier than if they weren't in relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just think we have to take the time to learn the story and respond in personal ways um, rather than expecting certain behaviors and attitudes and things like that as normal and then like punishing or rejecting the ones that don't don't fit into that box.
Well, I think that's, it's really crucial when you do, you know, to make that connection with everybody. It's, it's funny because, um, you know, I, I recruited kids for so many years and I, there's two recruiting questions I have and I usually wait kind of towards the end. I always say, what do you watch on TV? And I always say, and if you could own one land animal and one, um, water animal and they couldn't hurt you, what would it be? And they always look at me like, why are these important questions? And for me, it's the it's the easiest questions because everybody can answer them, right? And it opens up that conversation because um, people are scared to say, I don't know what to say to kids. And some t- everybody's going to talk about TV. Everybody's safe to talk about animals. Find those questions that any person can ask and the kid's going to go, oh my gosh, I watched this, right? And right. it can make a connection or, oh my gosh, yes, I'd like, you know, I'd want to own a tiger. Oh my gosh, so me too, right? So it's those kind of those things that are, find the commonalities because then kids are going right. to dig in. You're no longer yep. that boring adult. So I always say, keep some questions in your back pocket that you can relate to anybody about because that opens the door to the story, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think too, there's, um, once you get into those stories and you start discovering things, one of the main things that you're going to find is that all humans want that kind of connection. Yes. You in, And sometimes it takes a little bit of interpretation to see somebody reaching for it. But one of my favorite psychologists was Alfred Adler, and he has claimed, and it's been reiterated through the decades, that all behavior is, a, is based on a need for belonging. Everybody wants to belong. That's their most, that's their highest goal. And so when people act in ways that seem off-putting or they, they get in trouble or they do things that we would culturally, we would call bad or misbehavior, we can reinterpret that as a misunderstanding of how to achieve belonging. And so all we have when, when kids are acting out is kids who haven't quite figured out how to connect yet. And, and it's frustrating, it's discouraging for them because that's what they want. Mm. And so when we respond to them as if we know that they're trying to experience belonging and they just don't know how to do it yet, and so we can come alongside and partner with them, uh, that, that, goes, that, that knocks down a whole bunch of hurdles and obstacles that are in the way that, to the connection and the shared story where we start to find out who this person really is. And once they have experienced belonging that they get to in a healthy way and they have that, it's pretty amazing how often the behavior levels out. Well, Curtis, this, the information you pass on is invaluable. I'm mentally going through my head of the people in my life that need to hear, uh, your responses to these questions because this impacts people across the board. Anybody that comes in connection with, with kids or young adults, this stuff is super crucial um, to put into practice and to, like you say, make that connection to help kids figure out how to be in community. It's, it's not something that just comes naturally for everybody. And one of our best services as adults is to teach kids along the way, how to be in community and show them what they do bring to the team or the, the community itself. So I greatly appreciate your time, Curtis. Um, as I say, this is such a key topic and I, uh, I greatly am excited to go and see um, how we can implement some of this, um, even in the school system that I work in. So I, I appreciate your time very much, Curtis. Sure. Well, thanks for 
thanks for inviting me and for asking me all kinds of interesting questions and <laughs> letting me talk too long. I, 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 was, I feel a great relief when I get to like just dump for a little while. So I appreciate the Well, the as I say, it's fun to nerd out on the things that we're so passionate about. And I love to yeah. learn what everybody nerds out about. So I always look at it as, okay, yeah, tell me, I want to know. Um, Cause I always feel in my profession, the more I know, the more I've got to go learn from other people. So every time I do a yeah. podcast, I'm like, oh, thank you for filling me because I feel like I still have so much to learn to be the best at whatever I do for, for the people I work with. So, okay, stay safe, Same. my friend, and uh, have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Talk to you later. You too. Thanks a lot, Carrie. Check out Train the Complete Athlete anywhere you can find podcasts or go to the website at www.trainingthecompleteathlete.com.